Before I get started with the message today, I've got some personal exciting news that I just had to share with you. Um, I've got a pretty big family. I'll tell you how big in just a minute. But it was just yesterday I learned that I became a great uncle. So my nephew, and that's not a joke. I'm a wonderful uncle. I already know that. But yesterday it became official as my nephew and niece-in-law brought a, a child into the world. And so I'm officially a great uncle. And Speaking of that, this kind of takes me down a little path that'll set us up for our message today, so just bear with me. But as, as I think about my family, this now brings 27 people into the category of what I would consider close blood relatives. I have 27 close relatives. This includes my parents, my four siblings, uh, the, the um, spouses of my four siblings, and then all the kids of my siblings, and now a great, uh, great uh, nephew that I now have also. So 27 people that I would consider, just on my side, who are in my close family. And the point of me bringing this up today is that when it comes to these 27 people, I get along with them remarkably well. In fact, as I think back to the last 10, 15 years, I can't think of any major or even minor conflict that kind of had us on our heels. And I'm going to give you the secret to this. I've avoided major conflict with my 27 close relatives in one simple way. You see, we have a practice as, as a family. Every two years, we get together for two and a half days. And that's pretty much all we see of each other. I mean, there's little meetings and little get-togethers here and there, but basically every two years we see each other for two and a half days. So even though I've got really a whole bunch of close relatives that I would say are close to me, in reality they're pretty far. So if you came to me for relationship advice, like, hey, I'm not getting along with my family member, I would be like, I have no idea what you should do. Although I would give you one piece of advice, Maybe like move two time zones away. Like that's kind of worked for me. Like we're geography just geographically spread out across the country. And for, for us, that just makes us stay close together. <laughs> but that doesn't really work in contexts like marriage, does it? When you're especially close to someone and you spend a lot of time with that someone, it's only a matter of time until some sort of conflict raises its head. And in many cases... You can't just run away from it, and in most cases, you should not just run away from it. So this is going to get kind of serious, so I thought, let's just have a little bit of fun, because I think we've all had those family gatherings where at first everything was fine, but then it started to get awkward, and maybe there was even a conflict, and there perhaps was a moment where someone finally just spoke what was on their mind. I mean, they were bottling it up, bottling it up, but then it just got to a point where they just exploded in front of the whole family, and they just shouted out what was wrong, and it got ugly. So do you guys want to do that today real quick? Just get it out? Now, for, for me, as I think of conflict, I know it can be different, but one of the major causes of conflict is what I'm going to put on the screen next. And so if you just want to internally say this, or if, if you're watching online, you could say this out loud with me. It's kind of fun, and I think it's a little cathartic just to let it out. What we're all thinking in times of conflict is this. You're getting in the way of what I'd rather be doing. When someone stays at your house for a couple days, it's fun. But after day three, day four, it's like they start to get in the way of what you'd rather be doing. Um, empty nesters, when your kids come back home, it's great for a day or two. But after a while, you're getting in the way of what I'd rather be doing. 
and especially in the marriage relationship, there can be times and seasons where the person you're living with is getting in the way of what you'd rather be doing. And I, I, think, I think we would all do much better in life if we would just come clean with this right away. Like before we let it bottle up and get to the point of explosion, just walk up to, walk up to your, your uncle and say, you know what, you're getting in the way of what I'd rather be doing right now. <laughs> and at least, at least we'd all be honest. Here's the first thing, I, we all know this, but here's the first thing that I wanna start with in the message today. The closer that someone is, the more conflict that there can be. Well, this is week four. This is part four of a message series in which we're talking all about relationships, more specifically the the marriage relationship. And of all the relationships out there, some of them can be pretty close, but none is closer than the marriage relationship. And of all of them out there, this one has the most potential for conflict. For the sake of those who are single, divorced, uh, widow, widower, maybe think of another person in your life who's a really close relationship or perhaps a group of people who are among the closest relationships you have. And maybe you know from personal experience that that's where the most potential for conflict is for you. All of us have people who are close. Perhaps you're keeping someone away so that there isn't conflict, but the closer someone is, the more conflict there can be. So this series is called Relationship Goals, and uh, Ben preached weeks one, two, and three, so I'm just stepping here in here for the final part. And one thing I've noticed about weeks one through three is that not once have we looked at a scripture text that talks about marriage. Have you, looked, have you noticed that? So far, it's all been single people thing. And maybe there's a lesson that there are really are no marriage issues or marriage problems. It's more single people problems that you bring into marriage. But today, we're, we're going to break that trend. We're actually going to look at a text that mentions marriage. But as I thought through weeks one through three, there was so much good stuff, I wish I could repeat it all for you. But here's the foundational um, truth that we're looking at for this series. I put it on the screen so I wouldn't forget. Marriages thrive. First of all, marriages will be difficult because you're two people really close together. But marriages thrive when couples work toward goals that build on the foundation of Jesus. Jesus gave that promise that when the wind and the waves, when the storms come, if you are built on him, you will stand. Marriages thrive when you work toward goals that are founded on Jesus and his truth. And today we're going to see that is especially true as we wrap up this series and talk about the nature of marriage itself and why it is that we can get engaged in conflict, whether externally, verbally, or whether it's just an internal conflict that you never quite share. And it has everything to do with how you view the relationship. It has everything to do with the expectations that you bring into this relationship. And quite often these expectations go unspoken and unverbalized. So here's where I want to take you today as we close out this series. I want to show you how your marriage, how your view of marriage, or how you view marriage, affects how you handle conflict. And there's a lot of different things we could do. First of all, I think I've already acknowledged this, that I'm not the one to give advice on conflict management. Like, I, I haven't experienced a whole lot of it in my life, and so this isn't about conflict tools and how to navigate it. There's great books and, and uh, um, blogs out there on that. But I do want to get to one principle, one foundational truth that you can build your marriage on, or as you think of your closest relationships, this principle 
will help you establish a view of your relationships that help you navigate and avoid conflict. Before we get into what Jesus said, just as I look at the world today and as I did some studying and listened to, uh, listening to other sermons this past week on the topic, there's really three general ways to approach relationships. And this is true of marriage, but I'll just generalize it. This can be true of every relationship. They all start with C, and if you want to take notes, these, this, you got three C's in your message notes, and so these line up with those. Uh, the first one is a consumer approach. Consumer approach says... The reason I'm in this relationship is because of what you do for me. So it's pretty simple, you do for me. Another way to think of this in context of marriage is it's really a casual approach to marriage. You, it's, it's, the bottom, it's, it's like the, the bottom rung on the ladder. The casual approach to marriage is it's just, it's just a piece of paper. What's the big deal about getting married? All it is, it's a certificate, it's a piece of paper, it's really no big deal. Um, Consumer-type marriage means that if there's anything in it, then it should, it should just provide me with something. Now, not many of us would raise our hands and say, yep, that's the kind of marriage I want, or that's the kind of relationship I want. But what I think is so interesting is that we tend to gravitate into this mindset when we feel that we are being unjustly treated. You know, like at the restaurant, you pay good money for food, but when your food comes in a way you don't want it, you go into consumer mindset. You do for me or else. And in the darker moments of a marriage or a relationship, you can have that same consumer approach. The second approach is similar, but a little different. It's a contractual or a contract approach. A contract approach says, I will do for you if, if you will do for me. Another way to think of this is compromise. That could be another C that we throw in there. It's a compromise-based marriage or a compromise-based relationship where neither person is ever really happy, but you just kind of compromise on your happiness and meet each other halfway. And there are some good things to compromise on, but a marriage is not built on compromise. If you're meeting with your growth group this week, this will be a great question to talk about. Like, what are some good areas you should compromise? And maybe what are some areas that you shouldn't? And this is all reflective at the core of a contractual type relationship. I will do for you if you will do for me. Now, before we even get to the third part, the third option here, just notice what's going on here. As you enter into a marriage relationship where you stand up in front of the church or stand up in front of the judge, and you know the two words that you say when the time is right? I do. Do you take him, do you take her to be your spouse? I do. A lot of times when people say, I do, in the back of their mind, what they're thinking is, they will do. Or, I will do only if they do. What's interesting is this third type sounds so risky. It sounds as if you're just making yourself a doormat for people to walk on. But the third type is the type that Jesus pointed to, and it's a covenant approach to marriage. A covenant approach says, I do. I will do this, regardless of the response. I will do this, no strings attached. I will love you. I will cherish you in sickness, in health, for richer, for poorer. I do. It's a one-sided agreement, which sounds so risky. What if they, 
never comes into mind? What if they never comes into your mind? Because a covenant relationship is all about what you do. Now, most of you who grew up in church or are connected to North Cross for a while can probably say, okay, well, this is the end of the message because we know that you know, covenant is kind of the way to go. But what I want to do is, is dive into the tension a little bit more because one day Jesus was actually confronted by some people who pointed to these three options in a way and said, Jesus, if marriage is supposed to be this, then why does God allow for these two approaches? Or as we're going to see, the, the word that's going to come up in our text is the word divorce. If, if God is all about a covenant marriage, then why does God allow divorce? And we're going to see the context in just a minute. But here's my disclaimer for the message today. Divorce is its own topic that de- deserves its own message because there's so many different facets to it. And as I open up this text to you, it's going to talk about divorce but we're not going to dive into that part of the text specifically today. I recognize and I appreciate that there are people tuning in, people who are connected to our church family, who are members of the family that have gone through divorce for various reasons. And each case deserves its own attention and love and guidance. But for our message today, we can't do justice to that topic But what we're going to do is look at the alternative, the covenant approach to marriage, the I do, the one-sided approach. And the way this comes up before Jesus is because of an ancient law code that some people brought up to him. And this is so out of context for us, but it's so important for us as we understand what happens in Matthew chapter 19 to understand the law code that was being presented to Jesus on the day an important question was being asked. What does Jesus, how does Jesus view marriage? And what does a covenant relationship mean? All begins back in the 1400s BC. There was an Israelite law code. Remember this, the Israelite nation was a theocracy. God established their laws through Moses. And there's an Israelite law code where God basically taught a nation how to get along together. Some of this law code was spiritual in nature, like how to offer sacrifices and what is right and what is wrong. Some of the law code was more civil, civic in nature, how to, how to deal with each other in a society. But there was one law code in specific that governed the topic of marriage. And it was four verses out of Deuteronomy chapter 24 that got people arguing for centuries and centuries. So that 1,400 years After this law code was given, there was still debate as to what this section meant about marriage. Here's what the text originally said. If a man, remember the first word, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and if he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And then it goes, I didn't put the whole thing up there, but the next three verses basically say, if she goes off and marries another man who then divorces her or he dies, then the end result is this man is not allowed to marry her again. So if you're a guy, if you divorce your wife, if she marries someone else, you cannot marry her again. That's what the civil law code was saying back in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And what people argued for centuries were those two first words in the yellow there. 
wait a minute. So if my wife is displeasing, if my wife is indecent, all I have to do is write up a certificate of divorce and give it to her and she's gone? And Jewish, um, Jewish leaders argued these. In fact, even in Jesus' day, within the group of people we know as the Pharisees, there were two big schools of thought on this. The one school of thought took these really literally and said, this is basically permission from God that if you as a husband don't like your wife for whatever reason, you can just write up a certificate of divorce and get rid of her. So they, they viewed this as a license to get rid of your wife. Others had a more strict view. They said, no, that's not what was intended. What was intended is that under certain circumstances, extreme circumstances, if a man divorces his wife, he, can, he, he cannot marry her again. And so there was internal arguing over this, even in the first century. So Jesus' enemies did something to him that they often did. They brought to him a matter that they themselves couldn't figure out, and they brought it to Jesus to trap him with it, knowing that he couldn't really take a side on this because nobody knew what this text really meant and what the law code was designed to do. So here's what happened. In, in Matthew chapter 19, people bring this law code before Jesus and ask for his opinion on it. But in doing so, he allowed, they allow Jesus to talk about the nature of marriage and what it truly means to have a covenant focus in it. Here's what happened. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, according to our Jewish law, <laughs> is it lawful. They didn't say, is it right? Or is it loving? They simply said, is it lawful? And that was part of the trick. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And what they knew is that Jesus, this is interesting even today, Jesus showed extraordinary care and love and he elevated women more than anyone else in the first century. And so they, they were trapping him with this simple test. If he agrees that it is lawful, then he's obviously against women. If, but if he disagrees, if he says it's unlawful, then he's obviously against the law of Moses, and he is a false teacher. So they had him trapped. But Jesus, instead of giving a simple yes or no, he did what he often did. He showed them why the question wasn't accurate. He continues like this. He said, haven't you read, totally demeaning them, because they were experts in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. What you guys are referencing is Moses. He was 1,400 years ago. You're, you're referencing the law code that Moses had to put into place. But haven't you read what happened before that? At the beginning, there was a greater principle, a greater foundation for marriage that, that you guys are completely missing. So he, he, he beats them. He's, instead of basing his response on the law code of Israel, he goes back to the beginning of the order of things and how God designed marriage to be. In the beginning, the creator made them male and female. We were designed with a purpose, and the purpose was this. He made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. In other words, this wasn't for Adam and Eve because they didn't have fathers or mothers. But going forward, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two 
will become one, one flesh. And a common question I get about this is, what, what does that mean, the two become one? Well, what are the options? Is it, is it a sexual thing? Is it an emotional thing? Is it a spiritual thing? Is it a financial thing? Um, the answer is yes. In every way imaginable, two people, more than any other human relationship, these two people in marriage become one. And it's, it's such a close union that as, as you look at it, and if two people who are married are, are, are taken apart, one or both of them will be, will be injured in some way. It's such a close, uni- a close uni- unity that the one to become two again would destroy them both. And so Jesus gives this harsh encouragement, warning, or principle. He says, therefore, they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one try to separate. This, this, this is not the way it was designed to be at the beginning. This brings up the, the whole idea of the covenant mentality. Just think about what this would do. I'm going to speak to married people first. Imagine what this mindset would do to a marriage. That when you enter into conflict, and it will happen, when you enter into conflict, you enter in with a mindset. Quite often conflict is, well, you're not doing for me what I want. But what if in that moment you realigned your heart to acknowledge, no, the foundation for my marriage is not what they do for me, it's what I do for them. That's the foundation that I live off of. That is a game changer, to have that mindset as you enter into a marriage and as you enter into conflict. And my quick encouragement, if you're, if you're single and potentially becoming married someday, here's, here's the important part. Enter into every relationship as if it was a covenantal beginning. As you think about a potential future spouse, guard that covenant relationship. As you enter into a relationship with someone, keep in mind that this relationship might not last. There might be another one in the future that will be your covenant-based relationship. Reserve that unity of marriage for when you actually enter into that covenant of marriage. And if you're not married, if you're single, if you're, if you're divorced, if, if you're a widow or a widower, as you view your primary relationships in life, your human relationships in life, what would it look like for you to enter into it with a covenant-type mentality? It's not what they do for you. It's all about how you can submit for them. What we see from, from God is, number two, that the original design was for marriage to be a lifelong marriage, a lifelong covenant where two people independently come together with the promise and with the, the, the approach that it's not what they do for me. I'm coming into this marriage because of what I can do for them. Imagine what that would look like with two people mutually submitting to each other in such a way. But this brings up a loophole. Because when it comes to the, the Old Testament law code that God gave his people, while, while there were many things that God talked about with regards to marriage, we can't just ignore what Deuteronomy chapter 24 said. 
Well, what about this man who finds his wife displeasing? Like, why would God allow that? And how should we approach the whole idea of divorce or marriage today? And what does it mean to be in a covenant? And so the Pharisees, after Jesus talked about, you know, the idea that you shouldn't separate what God has brought together, they bring up a good question. They, they ask, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, do you remember what Deuteronomy 24 actually said? I don't think Moses was commanding anyone to to write up a certificate of divorce. What Moses was saying that is simply, guys, if, if if you do this, if you decide that your wife is displeasing to you, go ahead, write up a certificate of divorce so that maybe some other gentleman will take care of her in the way that you are unable to do. Back in that time, especially in Moses' day, women were dependent, unlike they are today. An unmarried woman was vulnerable in so many ways, including financially. So if a, if a man, back in Moses' day, if a man would despise his wife to the, to the degree that he would just get rid of her, that was basically a death sentence for her. If he would just kick her out of the house without releasing her from the marriage, she would have no one to take care of her she would have no house to belong to. And so Moses made this concession. He said, look, if, if you're going to treat your wife that way, then it, let's at least give her a chance to be taken care of properly. Write up your certificate of divorce and the marriage so that maybe some other man will, will have the heart to do what you were unable to do. It was a way of preventing abuse in that society. It was a, a way of preventing neglect to the women that Moses was called to serve. So they're asking, well, why did Moses command? Moses didn't command this. The the, the whole idea behind Deuteronomy 24 was not that there was a problem with marriage. The problem, as Jesus said, was with you. And in today's context, we have broadened that. It's not just the men who might have a problem. It's, It's a human problem. It's a people problem. Jesus put it this way. He said, when Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, You are kicking your wives out onto the street with no way for them to be taken care of. And so at least Moses gave a pathway for them to be provided for. The reason Moses did this was that he permitted it. He permitted it because your hearts were hard. But Jesus said it was not always this way. It was not this way at the beginning. It's not the way that God wanted it to be. God never wanted hearts to be hardened. He never wanted divorce to be an option. God intended marriage to be a lifelong covenant where two people mutually share that one-sided promise or covenant that I will do for you, I do for you, without expecting anything in return. But because hearts were hardened, people downgraded themselves to the consumer relationship and the contractual relationship. And as soon as things didn't come their way, as soon as a wife or a husband became displeasing, That was all the reason they needed to write up the piece of paper and be done. It was because our hearts are hard that all of us, regardless of a divorce or non-divorce, all of us, our hearts are hardened to the point where we simply enter into relationships expecting things from others. But here's what the law of Moses teaches us. Laws could not create the kind of love that God wanted there to be. 
God could not make a commandment that would force husbands to love their wives in the way he wanted. God could not evoke a rule or a principle that would force wives to love their husbands in the way that he wanted. Laws can only highlight the problem. And they can only safeguard and protect those who are vulnerable to the problem. But ultimately, this is not the solution. Ironically, as we look at a bigger picture between us and God, quite often we, we look at God, we, we naturally take a consumer or a, covenant, a um, contractual approach to God where, where we, we think in, in our hearts, um, God, why don't you do this for me? Sometimes we increase that to the contract level. God, if, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. But when it comes to the way that we are by nature, our hearts hardened, there is nothing we can do. There is nothing we can offer. No contract, no deal we can sign that would make us good with God again. And so God, recognizing that the law could not do what it needed to do, he had a different plan. Here's a beautiful verse from the prophet Ezekiel. God promised, I will give them an undivided heart. I'll put a new spirit in them. I'll remove from them their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh. Then as the passage goes on, it talks about how the people would then just naturally want to keep God's laws, recognizing the beauty of them and the purpose of them. But God's promise to his Old Testament people, was that even though their hearts were hardened in such a way that God had to create laws that protected people who were being cast out, God said, that's just a temporary Band-Aid. One day, I'll give you a new heart. And one day, the Son of God came to establish, what did he come to establish? A new covenant in his blood. A new one-sided agreement that was not based on commandments, not based on a moral code, and not based on an ancient civic law code. This new covenant was based on his love and his commitment. It was all about what he would do for you, even when you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is the amazing covenant that God had with you and me, that though you were dead, he made you alive. Though you were hostile, he became your friend, your savior. And what we all know, number three, it took a new covenant to give you a new heart. And this is the foundation for a covenant marriage. This is not about giving you rules and guidelines and principles for how to navigate conflict. This is about approaching marriage from the standpoint of a covenant, a one-sided agreement. And the only way that can work is if you recognize the covenant that God made for you. So we have to wrap things up here. But at the end of each of our messages in this series, we've wanted to take a real practical look at what this means for you. And for this message, as we talk about approaching it from a covenant standpoint, maybe the big takeaway is a personal mindset change. When you start to enter into conflict, here's what I know, you're going to want to blurt out whatever's on your mind, which is not good. If you blurt out whatever's on your mind, you're just going to say something like, you're getting in the way of what I really want to be doing. And then you're going to step back and say, well, that was pretty selfish. <laughs> when you blurt out what's on your heart, what's on your mind, it can be pretty, pretty unfiltered. It can be pretty 
caustic to the relationship. So here's the application for today. As you think in terms of a covenant, what about this? What if we could freely share what's on our new heart? What's on our new mind? The the mind and the heart that God has transformed through his covenant relationship with us. What if you had freedom in the moment of a conflict to be able to speak freely your failures, knowing that they've been forgiven in Christ? What if you had in the moment of conflict this new heart that was ready to hear and extend forgiveness to others? It's one thing to just speak from your heart. Communication is part of handling conflict. But when you communicate from a new heart, the heart that God gave you, it gives you a foundation where it is not going to be vulnerable. You have a resilient heart that is guarded by Christ in heaven. Maybe as you try this out, there's going to be a blending of the two. Your old heart will want to say, you're just getting in my way, and there'll be some frustration, but then let your new heart step in and say, you know what? What I just said was really selfish, and I acknowledge that. I'm sorry. Let your new heart speak, and let that heart be continually transformed by the covenant love that God has for you. So what we hope you've found in this series, married or not, is that you found some wisdom from God about how to approach relationships. And what I believe is that as you enter into conflict, and it will happen, that as you have a covenant mentality about what you do for them because of what God did for you, it will give you a firm foundation to handle the wind, the waves, and all the issues that come up as a result of conflict in your life. And I hope you can come back next week. We're going to start a new series that's, we're we're setting aside the topics for a while. We're just going to dig into the life of Jesus and look at some amazing things that he did. So I hope you can join us next week as we launch that brand new message. But for today, let's close with a prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I know that relationships can be so complicated and um, marriage in particular when two people come together in such a close way, um, in, in every way, it's, it's, it's only a matter of time and, until our sinful hearts get in the way of the love that we want to share. Our sinfulness wants to continue to argue and say, well, I can't do what I'd rather be doing, but I pray that you would give us a, a clear view of the reality that our life isn't about what we do. It's, it's better gauged by who we get to love. So for the marriages in this room, for the marriages online, I pray that you would give us a better perspective of that primary human relationship that we get to invest in in this life. Let your love for us simply flow through us to them. And I pray that is true in all the relationships in our life, that we would have a covenant approach, loving them in a way that only you could demonstrate to us and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I pray your blessing on all of us, I pray your blessing on marriages. Though they are hard, they are so worth it. And this is the unique place where we get to show our love for you. So bless and keep us in Jesus' name. Amen.